Okay, so welcome to episode one of the the Bases Pediatric uh, Special Interest Group uh, podcast. I'm Ash, and I'll be hosting the podcast today. Um, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by Professor Neil Armstrong. Um, some of the questions that I've had coming through Twitter through people who aren't within the sports and exercise community, if you like. Um, I just want to try and clarify now that this isn't the astronaut. Um, and this is a physiologist as opposed to an astronaut. So it's it's nice that we've got uh, Professor Neil Armstrong coming on for the first episode, because I guess that if you don't know who he is at this moment in time, I suggest you go away and read some of the research. Um, and and hopefully that'll that'll contextualise who he is, really. And, and without further ado, I'm going to put it across to you, Neil, really, and you can introduce yourself because... We'd be here all day if I tried to summarise, so across to you. Oh, thanks very much, Ash. As you say, I'm, I'm Neil Armstrong. I'm a Professor of Paediatric Physiology at the University of Exeter. And yes, I guess blighted with that name. I was actually a student when Neil Armstrong landed on, uh, on the moon. Um, <laughs> and in those days, they didn't trust students with check cards. So the first check I wrote after he'd landed, the guy looked at it threw it back at me and said, yeah, put Mickey Mouse last time. So Brilliant. I've always suffered from that name, but um, <laughs> I, predate, uh, I predate them landing. Brilliant. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you're blessed there with that name, aren't you, I guess. Um, so we're going to keep it fairly relaxed. The The first thing that I want to cover, really, you've had such a, a, a massive career, really. It's, you know, it, it spans for decades, I feel, Fairly insignificant as a as a PhD student coming on and talking to yourself, a bit starstruck. Um, so if you could just give us an idea, really, of what got you into this field uh, initially. Well, I suppose like most people, I um, as a schoolboy footballer, enjoyed sport, and um, you know was was went to a local grammar school. It was quite bright. My parents wanted me to be, or certainly my father wanted me to be a professional footballer. Uh, I signed to Newcastle when I was. Um, when I, when I was young, decided that um, I didn't want to be a professional footballer. And let's get it straight. There wasn't the money in football then that there is now. Or <laughs> I was taking the contracts offered. Um, my headmaster wanted me to do medicine. And going to Loughborough to do PE was kind of somewhere in between. So remember, in those days, there was no sports science. So yeah. I went to Loughborough and did um, physical education. And I guess I had a great time in Loughborough, but it was about 95% practical in those days and very little academic input yeah but I actually enjoyed the academic input uh, really I suppose I got here through two unsung heroes in um, sports science the first was the guy who uh, was responsible for anatomy and physiology at Loughborough Henry Robson or Doc Robson as we called yeah. him and Doc Robson was actually the guy who started the British Journal of Sports Medicine and he yeah. I think edited it for about the first 20 years and fortunate for me, he had been brought up in Sunderland and been a GP in the Northeast. So he kind of half adopted a, a, a stray Geordie like me. Um, it's been somebody who could work in that area. And he advised me as I was coming to the end of my um, behead in those days at that yeah. point, to go up and see a guy on the hill again. And in those days, Loughborough College was a totally separate entity from Loughborough University even though they were on the, the same campus. And he advised me to go and see a guy called Dr. Ernest Hamley, who was actually in the Department of Ergonomics and Cybernetics 
Now, I didn't even know what ergonomics and cybernetics meant at the time, but I went to see Ernest, and Ernest um, said, yeah, okay, come and do a, an MSc with me in ergonomics and cybernetics, and we can fix it so that it's um, in human biology. Yeah. So the course was um, six months of uh, actual lectures and so forth and exam, and then the six-month thesis, which I focused on with human biology. But just as an aside, just to show how important Ernest Hamley is, although you know he's largely been forgotten, he gave the same opportunity to people like um, Vaughan Thomas, Tudor Hale, Ed Winter, Joe Doust, Dave Kellett, um, Kevin Sykes, all of who became um, full professors in sports yeah. science and, uh, in time. Probably never would have happened without, without Ernest giving that opportunity. So anyway, I started to think about this um, six-month thesis uh, for my MSc, and I, I think the first academic book I bought was the first edition of P.O. Ostrand's textbook of work physiology. And I, I really loved this book, and I was reading it, looking for a, um, an area to work in, and I came across what was then known as the Astran rhyming nomogram to predict uh, VO2 max. And I couldn't find anything anywhere where I, anything had been done on children. Yeah. So again, remember this is back in the Stone Ages, and there was no computers, no email. So I actually wrote to Pierre Ostrand uh, at the Kosberg at the uh, Karolinska Institute on, again, something before your time, Ash, airmail <laughs> paper, which was very flimsy to make it light to go by airmail. And I wrote to, um, to Pio asking him if um, he'd done anything with children with his nomogram, not really expecting an answer. And about two weeks later, I got this long letter back in, on airmail paper in longhand from the great man saying, yeah, he was interested. They never did anything with anybody under 20. Very interested um, in uh, my results. And I mean, something which I remembered, he said to me, or wrote to me, he said, um, don't forget that children aren't mini adults and treat them as such. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's, that's good advice. So anyway, cut a long story short, I did my thesis on, um, I think it was 13, 14 year old children with the Astran nomogram. Sent Ostrand the, the results as he, as, he, as he asked. I got a letter of thanks and then didn't give it much thought. Oh, sorry, the other thing he asked me in his, um, in his letter, he said, make sure you read my thesis, which was his 1952 book, which was the, the first work ever done, which included both boys and girls in Tessnavia 2 Max. Yeah. Maybe it must have been five, six years later, we published what was my first real paper in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And I've been testing children and um, you know following on from Astran, what Astran um, demonstrated in his in his book was that about 50% of children didn't show the classical plateau and a beer two mass. Uh, and that had almost been lost in the literature. There was nobody was actually um, owning up to this. I tested these kids and got about the same result as Ostrand, about 45% of the children didn't show a plateau. These were um, trained swimmers, and they were absolutely knackered. I knew yeah. I could pass them out of them. So in the paper, I termed it um, peak oxygen uptake. And you never know of these things, but I think that was the first time the term was used. It's a 1981 paper. Peak VO2. And um, lo and behold, I got a letter out the blue from, um, from Ostrand. Just so to say, you know, you're the Neil Armstrong, blah, blah, blah. And he said, um, as he always did, um, I'm pleased you took my advice and read my thesis. So 
so that really got me going. And and um, so I mean, I'm just pay homage to um, to Po. How uh, again, he kind of adopted me. And again, three or four years later, I was given my first paper at uh, ACSM, and Ostrom was in the audience. And he came up to me afterwards, introduced himself, uh, and we became great friends. Although for the next what would it be, thirty years almost. Whenever he wrote to me, even when I was a full professor, it was always, dear student. Uh, whenever I wrote a, um, wrote a paper, if he was interested, and he'd, he'd read the paper and send me a comment, you know, dear student, I see you've been reading my thesis again. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've got to pay homage, I think, to, to, the, to those guys. I was a bit long-winded, but I think Doc Robson, Ernest Tamley, and then P. Ostrand, I mean, take responsibility or maybe the blame for getting me into um, paediatric physiology. Oh, brilliant. Well, we've got him to thank then, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think so... It's kind of interesting going back in that in that way, and that when we, we did our first work on um, with testing children, uh, of course, nothing in this country had ever been done before at this sort, at this sort of level, actually running children to exhaustion. Yeah. And taking it to an ethical committee was horrendous. Yeah. I had all these medics on uh, our ethical committee, and they were quite happy for me to take venue puncture blood samples out of the kids uh, for lactates and so forth. But running into exhaustion on a treadmill, I mean, actually said to me, "You're going to have deaths." And I'm so, what you know, what's happening here? When I was a PE teacher, as a PE teacher for five years, I um, I used to expect children to run to exhaustion and athletics, cross country, what have you. And there, there was me and 35 kids. Now you've got one kid in the treadmill, five or five kids are at five, you know, students or staff around them. Um, what's the problem? Uh, I'm surprised how difficult things which are, you know, go through on the nod now were to get through yeah. ethical committees who just didn't understand what we were doing in sports science. Yeah, it, it kind of comes with that little caveat, doesn't it? People are scared to to delve too far into to children and young people, I guess. So it is, it's a, certainly a, it's a challenging field to work in. Um, so fair play for getting all that through. I don't know where we'd be now if you hadn't got it through well, back then. So was was they pulled me up on the um, running kids to exhaustion in the treadmill, but they were very very happy about venue puncture blood samples. And it was <laughs> uh, oh, it must have been fifteen to twenty years. Every kid who came into the laboratory, we assessed their maturity using the index, you know, Tanner's index indices, the pubic yeah. hair, and, and that was not a problem to them at all. It was just this running kids to exhaustion in the treadmill. <laughs> You know, how things have changed over the last yeah. Year. <laughs> um, I mean, taking into account the ethics and, and how that's changed, and obviously how the the subjective and the objective assessments have changed over the years, certainly throughout your career. What changed have you seen, like the notable big changes from starting out uh, through to where we are today? I think it's a sheer explosion in research and publications. And again, I, you know, I probably take a little bit of the blame for that. And that when I first came to Exeter in um, the mid '80s, <laughs> that my colleagues did think I was from outer space because I was interested in research. And of course, they were fantastic teacher trainers of physical yeah. education. So I was a different animal. But then I was um, chairman of bases from uh, 1989 to 1991. And at the same time, I was um, vice president of the Physical Education Association. Now, again, in those days, the PEA was probably 20 times as big as bases, which only had a couple of hundred members. Yeah. So they were the two main things. And the first real um, 
what was called then research assessment exercise, what's now the REF, took place yep. in 1989 with selected subjects. Now, me and a couple of others thought, well, hey, if we really have to get sports science and PE into the REE, or it's always going to be thought of as a, a second grade subject. So did a lot of lobbying over that period, 89 to 91, to get um, what was what's called sports-related studies, it came known as, into the research assessment exercise, uh, the first one being in 1992. But you've also got to keep in mind that at that time, um, apart from, I think, in England, there was only Birmingham, Exeter, and Loughborough, where we had PE or sports science in a university, yeah. and the rest of the um, sports science was in the polytechnics. So this was before polytechnics became universities. And yeah. a lot of my colleagues in polytechnics weren't that interested in um, the research aspect as we were in the universities. And then, of course, in 1992, just before the, the, the research assessment exercise, the government changed all polytechnics into universities. And all of a sudden, there's a huge interest from people who, you know, their livelihood now depended on publications rather than <laughs> yeah. teaching. So became part of the, the REE in 1992, which you know, I still think was a really good thing. Um, I chaired it in 92 and I chaired it again in 96, by which there'd been a huge increase by 96 in publications and sports science coming out. And of course, then there's been a real explosion. And, and probably yeah. the REE and the REF have played a major part in, in that because of so much research money that's tied into scores in the REE. So I think that's that, that's really important. And of course, also it's um, you know, technology. I think yeah. it's played a great part. I remember the time in the early 90s where I used to pay a PhD student to every week go into the library, scour all the journals, and any article on children was photocopied. And we had a set of uh, filing cabinets, not too far from where I'm sitting now, which had virtually a photocopy of every paper that had ever been written on children and exercise. Now, can you imagine doing that now? That's you know, insane. But was, I don't think I'd be able to uh, embark on a PhD without things like Mendeley and RefWorks yeah. and that, yeah. Uh, doing a review was a, a major thing in, in those days. It re really was. Uh, yeah. I'm sure this all sounds like um, Stone Age history to, to, to you and a lot of the guys who <laughs> maybe, maybe eventually listen to this. But when you think that... Um, I had a, again, one of the people, uh, one of the contracts I had was with IBM. Yeah. Uh, we had um, the first of a particular IBM model um, desktop computer as part of the deal I had with IBM. And people from other parts of the university staff used to come down just to look at our computer because we had the first IBM computer uh, in the university. Uh, you know, this is to those of us who've got, you know, I'm sitting looking at three screens here. It's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so that's it? just an enormous. So, you know, I think, I think the fact that the REE being a big driver for now your career depends on research grants and so forth, yeah. and the availability of technology, as you say, to do um, reviews, reviews at the touch of a button. I mean, that's yeah. the, the explosion um, of, of, of research. Yeah. I mean, even just in, you know, over the last sort of 15, 20 years, we've gone from using pedometers, you know, through to accelerometers, now triax accelerometers. What are your thoughts on, on how they're developing and how they're moving the, the field forward? What's the, what's the, I guess, what I'm asking is, what's the, the upsides to it? What's the drawbacks as well? Because people rely 
far too much sometimes on on the equipment and the technology when sometimes we do just need a plain old spreadsheet and just sit there and observe. Well, I'm going to give you an example, um, an early example again, of sort of serendipity and that's one of the first big projects we set out to do here. I was interested in um, the prevalence of risk, currently risk factors in children, again, hadn't been done in this country, and whereas the stuff that had been done in the States was linking fitness, VO2 max or peak VO2 yeah. to these factors. I mean, I started thinking maybe you should be focusing on activity rather than um, VO2 max or are the two linked? Uh, I was looking at different ways of measuring uh, activity through questionnaires, diaries, interviews, and so on. And I wasn't very happy with any of them. And then lo and behold, plot through my um, letterbox was the very first sport tester in the UK. The sport tested heart rate watches. And Polar, who eventually finished up on their um, advisory board, uh, had sent me one to what I'd be interested in testing it out uh, as a training tool for athletes. Because when I saw it, I thought, hey, Eureka, here's a way of objectively measuring um, physical activity of children. Yeah. We did what, what was the first um, measurement of children's physical activity using heart rate watches. Uh, it was published in the um, yeah, British Medical Journal, in the British Medical Journal. And that evening, it was the first item on the BBC and ITV News. And everything went crazy. The media coined the phrase couch potatoes. <laughs> our data panorama came and did a program on us um, dispatches everything but the good thing was people started to throw money at me yeah so i financed a whole load of our research in terms of doing this so we get back to your question i think that step in technology moved um the work from being relying on recall with children which you can never rely on uh, yeah. to something which at that time was the peak of um objectivity now obviously that was uh late 80s when we did that things have moved on and now you know we've got much better measurements gps's accelerometry and so on but what is interesting uh i mean our results at that time were um that children aren't, aren't anywhere near as active as we thought they were yeah. boys tend to be more active than girls and the activity levels of both boys and girls reduce as they go through the teens technology's got better but the results haven't changed no i'd be measuring it more sensitively but it's exactly the same. We showed them that there was no meaningful relationship between habitual physical activity and fitness because habitual physical activity wasn't intense enough to affect fitness. Yeah. Um, still, nobody's shown there is a link between habitual physical activity and peak VO2. And we showed there was no relationship between activity and you know, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, HDL levels, or whatever. And again, that's never been demonstrated since. So... Technology, I think, over those years, of course, has made it more rigorous uh, and more sensitive measures. But the actual gist of what of what we know hasn't greatly changed from that time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, when when I you know look at the research that's available, you've got the the big call to action from the Lancet uh, back in 2012, and as I've reviewed the literature and I've just done my own systematic review as well. Um, not much has changed and and you know you're bang on the money we've got all this technology but where where would you like to see efforts put into because from my point of view you see either cardiorespiratory fitness 
physical activity or muscular strength to be rudimentary. I know we've got motor control sure. and, and all the outliers, but just to try and keep it as simple as possible for anyone who's listening, where would you like to see more research being developed and where do you think we should be not necessarily putting our eggs, but maybe focusing a bit more attention? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm obviously committed into paediatric physiology, so I'll stay with, with kids. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think that we need to do a lot more work in the basic science. Yeah. And that we've done a lot of things you say with with high, you know, with technology and so forth. But we still don't know how how kids tick. You know, they change, as you know, with um, with age, with maturity status, with growth, uh, morphological variables, physiological variables, all changing and all changing specific to that child, to that child. The temporal yeah. timing is specific, and yet we've got. Oh, journals and journals of research which totally ignore that, and they'll come up with mean values for children. There is no mean value for a children. You know, it's it's, it's a nonsense. Uh, so I mean, one of the things that's that's bugging us at the moment is things like um, clinical red flags. Children with a peak VO2 below 40 milliliters per kilogram per minute from age from eight to 18 uh, warrant attention. What a nonsense. Yeah. You know, the difference between um, an eight-year-old and an 18-year-old, not only with the same cardiospiratory fit, but dividement by their body mass, is just <laughs> indefensible. And yet, reputable journals are publishing these kind of things. X percent are below this level. It doesn't mean anything. So, yeah. in fact, do something would be, let's look at the basic science before we start getting into, you know, huge numbers of, of children being tested where you can't trust the measure yeah that's been my biggest bone of contention i think there's no contextualization of of the the underlying physiology like in the adults it's there more or less and it's developing all the time but in children for example my work is predominantly muscular fitness um from an snc background i look at it and think strength power hypertrophy muscular endurance but when it comes to paediatric and adolescent strength development it's just termed strength development there is no sort of term there's no splitting down of the adaptation that you want following the the exposure to the training um which i think we're just we're, we're missing the trick we really are um and i you know it it, it bothers me because I, I think that well let's let's say part of the blame is there's drive to publish yeah know? And and getting into um, you know, much go for more research grants and what's sexy in terms of looking at I don't know kids' cardiovascular fitness and currently heart disease you know and and that's a sexy topic you can usually get somebody to to fund that but the measures they use sometimes people use really intricate measures to measure some of the cardiovascular measures yeah. and then they'll measure fitness using a 20 meter shoulder run and you kind of think. <laughs> you know what's what's happening? Why aren't you taking the same care with the measure of fitness yeah. as you are with the um the other measures? Uh, you know, look how you were talking earlier on about um measures of activity, and we're we're you know going making huge leaps and bounds into more accurate measures of children's physical activity, and yet we'll go to a shuttle run to measure their to measure their cardiovascular fitness. It's it's it's, it's actually I find it really sad. Yes. I mean, just to, for, for anyone, like the, the lay person, I guess, who's listening to this podcast, what differences do you expect to see between an adult who's being measured on a 20-metre shuttle test, for example, um, and then 
a child. Now, I know we we both know that art is a broad spectrum, um, and I apologise for that question a little bit because it's very broad. Um, but what what again, keeping it as broad as possible, what differences would you expect to see between an adult and a child, and why is it so important? Well, I think the the, the key thing is what what are you measuring with um, a twenty meter shuttle run? For those not familiar, it's a matter you have to run in between um, two lines twenty meters apart at a certain pace. Which is, which is directed from an audio signal, which kind of increases every minute or so until you can run no longer. So first of all, we're getting into um, willingness to perform to maximum, it's usually yeah. done in groups, and you find that some, in some cultures, can you imagine um, uh, young girls, are they willing to run to exhaustion, to true exhaustion in that sort of situation? And this is why we sometimes find differences of 100% between boys and girls in some cultures. And yet, physiologically, you bring them into the laboratory and you test them on a, uh, in a treadmill, and the difference varies from about less than 10% pre-pubital up to maybe 40% at yeah. 18. So what's the explanation for a 100% difference next to a 10% difference? They're not trying. Um, it's cultural, culturally not right for them. And then you, you look at the actual test, even those who are trying, it really depends. The heavier you are, you do more work. Yeah. actually transporting your, your body mass. So how can you compare the performance of someone who is, um, you know, 70 kilograms against someone who is 40 kilograms? They both finish at the same point, but the one who's 70 kilograms has done a lot more work than yeah. the 40 kilogram one. And at the end of that, you then give a score where you divide by their body mass. Double whammy. So yeah. this is why these sort of tests show up, for example, um, overweight children to be totally unfit. Fat mass plays no influence in cardiospiratory fitness. It's free fat mass that drives cardiospiratory fitness. So when you look at the obese and overweight children and you um, appropriately accommodate their body mass, there's very little difference, if any, in cardiospiratory fitness between overweight and uh, and normal weight. So what worries me particularly is then you start getting recommendations picked up by health health bodies who don't understand the physiology based on flawed methodology. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that I think we've got to get over that uh, before we can make progress with children. So even if you've got um, you know, children the same age, uh, they're not necessarily the same maturity status. What happens with boys? They increase their muscle mass, so that you expect their peak VO2 to go up. What happens with girls? They increase more fat than fat-free mass. So, you know, it's a different, a different ball game. And yeah. take something as a, um, a cut point for health, the same cut point for an eight-year-old girl and an 18-year-old girl. Now, 40 mils per kilogram per minute for an eight-year-old is a heck of a lot different uh, pre-pubertal eight-year-old with a post-pubertal 18-year-old with exactly the same measure. Yeah, sure. You know, physiologists must go, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> physiologists are writing these. And, and, yeah. and that's, that just says we've got to get over this and be as meticulous with our own um, and as rigorous with our own subject as we are when we're doing, say, you know, medical measurements and so forth. Yeah. I mean, you, you often see, certainly in a, in a practice-based setting, so when working with, for example, I've spent some time with a couple of football clubs at academy level, um, and you'll see them, I mean, it's getting better now, so you've got things like biobanding that's used by the FA, where they'll batch them together by uh, biological age as opposed yeah. to chronological. 
but in general so within the community and the, and the, the general population that's often not understood uh, if even aware of that fact um, and obviously the implications that can have on the outputs anyway and if you're trying to get them involved and trying to bring them up to speed then if you're not putting them in the right bracket from a psychological standpoint we're missing a trick as well um, but I mean you're to, I agree I mean I think there has been some steps made in um, professional sport where there's many more and more resources actually built into it but they still haven't got it right and I'm not quite sure whether you can ever get it right yes kids are maturing at specific times which can't really be predicted um, yeah. so firebanding is, is helping us towards that way but you know I'd say with the professional game um, what worries me about academies and taking kids on board at sort of eight-year-old and so on is um, children who are rejected simply because they are late maturers. Uh, yeah. You know, haven't got the potential. Well, it's difficult to tell whether they've got the potential because <laughs> a lot of things are going to happen in between eight and, and, and 16. But, yeah. And so, you know, I think it is. It's, 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 it's one of the reasons why it's so interesting with, with children. It's a challenge, you know, working adult physiology is so easy physiology. <laughs> but having said that, um, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know what, what your experience is, Ash. But I mean, children are fantastic laboratory subjects. I mean, if you if you treat them right um, and make them feel, you know, as if they're important to to the to the team, as it were, um, they're fantastic. I mean, yeah. I um, the number of, of kids that we've had on here on the trend done a VO two max test, got the maximum. And, you know, 10 minutes later, come to the go, Neil, come to the go. I'll do better next time. <laughs> in all my experience of teaching, I have never found a sports science student who has run the maximum of year two max and 10 minutes later come back and said, can I have another go, Neil? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen with adults. <laughs> but the kids, you know, they are they're fantastic. If you treat them well, um, they're great sort of participants in, uh, in, in research. Yeah. And the, 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 I don't want to relate them to prisoners because that's probably not ethically right. But it's nice that we have this environment as well where we can capture these children in such a diverse cross-sectional area within the school environment as well, and particularly yeah. within physical education. Um, now, again, I, taking I it we back... Were, um, as, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I mean, yeah. we were kind of very fortunate in that in one of the early studies we did in, in the 80s, we got enormous publicity from from doing this, and got so well known, certainly within within the southwest, so that um, when I was the first study, I went round to every school in um, in Exeter and um, spoke to the headmaster, headmistress, and persuaded them that the kids. Once that that first one was done, you know, I can get any number of children by just picking up the telephone, uh, and they, they would come and release them. And of course, by over time. We've got um, a number of times I've um, gone to supermarkets and I'm, you know, paying at the till, and uh, the people on the till just, okay, not remember I was uh, on one of your projects, sort of, you know, 20 <laughs> years ago, and the parents have been on the project. Sometimes the parents come in with the kids and say, oh, I remember when we did that, and uh, and so on. Um, Brilliant. I did a uh, Radio Devon interview not long ago, and um, again, just start the thing. And in the middle of the interview, the interviewer. Turned out, you won't remember this, but I was at school accrediting and wore one of your watches when you were, uh, you know, had, had just been done it. So once you get it done as a flow, uh, you know, it, it, it's great. And the whole community become involved in, uh, 
and, and, and the projects. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to hear, and it? it's good to see that, that you've gone through generations almost, haven't you, of <laughs> testing and assessments. Old, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it. Um, I mean, we spoke briefly about uh, field-based testing for you know trying to account for body mass. What's the best way to account for body mass and field-based testing, or or what would that look like if you were to put something together? Um, again, it's a bit of a tricky question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah, I wouldn't use field tests. I mean, we yeah. we looked at the, uh, the 20 meter shuttle run test um, back in the 80s and found that I mean, using the the, the stats available at that time, uh, the common variance between peak VO2 predicted and real peak VO2 was something like 29 percent. Yeah, and um, we just rejected it out. So you know, that's not good because again. Doing a big project, I mean, the advantages, the financial advantages of using a field test compared with, um, you know, a VO2 max in a laboratory is, is just enormous. But, you yeah. know, we just rejected it and we've never used field tests since then. So, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't use field tests in a scientific project. But, you know, that's that, that, that's kind of me. If you want if you want to know cardiospiratory fitness, when you measure it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, so I guess it's, it's better to get the quality as opposed to the to the quantity um which some people pursue only for for publication really so yeah so i mean I, you know i'd rather have um a rig- rigorous measures on 25 kids than um weak measures on 2500 yeah yeah i mean so t- speaking about testing that as well we we know that children tend to get quite excited uh, and you know they they're quite engaging when it does come to to getting in and doing testing with them as they go through and into adolescence and they become more and more disengaged from physical activity in general, what sort of problems have you encountered with trying to get to engage them within testing? And how would you try and get them involved if they are disengaged? Well, when we first started, um, I was a great believer in equality. Um, we, we found that we could bring in, we bring in four, four kids at a time. It was, was what we, we knew we could handle. So in the morning we could do four Peak VO2 tests, also all the anthropometric measures, um, maturity stage, and so forth, quite quite happily. Yeah. Uh, started offering in two boys and two girls, but realised quite quickly that the girls were unwilling to run themselves to exhaustion if they thought <laughs> the boys were hovering outside. But then when we started bringing them in, you know, four girls or four boys at a time, the girls are at least as good a subjects as the boys. Um, yeah. and willing to go to exhaustion. So that was one. We tended to, tend to keep the sexes apart. If <laughs> but we fixed up so that um, we had a team. Um, I was very lucky. I had some fantastic PhD students. Uh, I mean, a guy who used to monitor, who for a long time monitored the, um, uh, looked after the kids when they came in and, and gave all the PhD students the job was um, Marcus and Quack, who's now a professor at, at Gloucester. Uh, yeah. We used to have it so the kids came in and knew what they were doing from walking through the door. First one would be when one was being on the treadmill, others would be having anthropometric measures, some others would be doing something else, some others something else. And then what we used to do with the schools was we would um, put some of the data together and let them have some of the descriptive data for maths lessons and so forth in the primary schools. And a lot of the students, I mean, like themselves, would go and give lessons in the schools. Yeah. So we used to get a, a really good relationship with the schools themselves. And we've had some, um, well, very, very rare, I 
can't offhand think of any anybody who didn't get a um, who didn't try their best. I mean, there's one or two tests we we just haven't satisfied us, and we've yeah. told the child we've just said thanks very much, but we just don't use the data because we know they they didn't go. And a couple of times, especially um, we always used to take blood lactates all the time, and occasionally used to get get a child who just didn't want to um, have their blood sampled. Yeah. So all we do is we just put a elastoplast over their finger uh, as if they had, so they weren't showing up to their to their friends, and you know they didn't work. The only shock that we had was um, was one day that we, we were doing a test. I think the boy must have been about 10. He was certainly a primary school boy, maybe 11. And he was doing this test. And I was actually in the room I'm in now trying to catch up with some work while the team were doing the um, the test. And Joe Wellsman, who was my senior research fellow, came in and said, uh, I think we've got a problem. This lad just started him off and he's complaining about pains down his left arm. So you know, I came and watched him and talked to him and spoke to him and he assured mm. that um, he'd never had any cardiac problems. And of course, we had written consent from his parents who um, said there'd been, never been any problems and so on. But, you know, it's not worth the risk here. So I asked him and his, his mother was actually a teacher at one of the primary schools. Yeah. So I took my car, took him back to, uh, to the school, told his mum and said, you know, I really think you should go and see your GP. That's what I said. I'm amazed. Not any problems before. Oh well, he had a hole in the heart operation when he was a baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the boy didn't know, and his oh parents had signed forms saying there's no reason why he shouldn't be run to exhaustion and so forth. Um, that's only once in maybe five thousand tests. Yeah, <laughs> but but it, you know that that actually shot me to the core, thinking. You know, one part we could have had a, a death here, but secondly, I was really proud of the team. Yeah. <laughs> Without me being there, immediately they stopped it and, and did everything right. So um, I suppose there's some pluses, but but yeah, that uh, yeah that would have been um, very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a career end, that. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 yeah. Uh, have you gone? Oh. No, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, you've, you've stopped my screen, but uh, oh, you're back. Yeah, just wondering what project. Sorry, Ashley, the sound's gone. Is that any better? Got you now, yeah. What are you working on at the moment? So what? Yeah. Well, what's what? what's, it's, it's interesting. I um, again, I mean, I thought I'd given up my research career. Um, <clears throat> almost 12, 13 years ago in that I never wanted to, but I um, I was arm twisted into becoming Senior Deputy Vice Chancellor and then Provost of the University. And I did that for 10 years. Uh, and of course, things go on and I stopped taking PhD students because it was a 24-7 job, as you can imagine, kind of in <laughs> the university. Uh, gave that up and thought I'd just see the end of my career out, just, um, you know, do what... Um, all dothery heads do uh, and um, I actually met up about a year ago uh, by chance in a coffee bar with I say Joe Wellsman Joe was my very first PhD student and I'd stay yeah. as a yeah, well I finished up as she was a reader uh, and then when I left to go to become proper she moved into um, research engagement and medicine away from sports science and we kind of 
met having a coffee and um, both I come to the same conclusion that we didn't know how far paediatric physiology had moved on in the kind of 10 years we've been away. So we decided, okay, um, let's go and ruffle a few feathers. So we've, I mean, I must, we, I must admit, we had, we had quite a lot of data which we um, had not analysed. To say I had not planned to become deputy vice chancellor was just kind of, um, you know, you will. Yeah. <laughs> so we kind of unearthed some of our, our data, but actually looking at things like um, trying to, to, to bring some, some more rigour back into how you analyse data. So I guess we've um, also published 20 papers in the last eight, nine months, are either in press or in published, really looking at some of the things we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, the value of field tests, how to analyze data, um, clinical red flags, and, and so forth. Um, I think there's some opposition, which has been kind of interesting. Um, uh, and it's uh, the one thing. The one thing I came through that actually just happened last week. We um, had a paper which has just been accepted by the European Journal of Applied Physiology. And it was a, a longitudinal study, 11 to 16 year olds of um, the uh, short-term power output, power and mean power, of um, 11 to 16 year old children. I think we had about a thousand measures on these kids going through. Yeah. And the comment, the only sort of um, scientific comment that came back from the, the, the sort of review was that um, I put in the paper something like, uh, you've never been done before to look at the effect of, because we also measured, I should have said, also measured on the same children, their peak oxygen uptake. Yeah. Um, both on a, on a cyclogometer and on a treadmill. So we had the, all four measures and on, on all of them longitudinally, which was pretty unique. Uh, and I, I put in that, um, and having done before, that the peak VO2, about the, the influence of peak VO2 on the development of mean power in uh, 11 to 16 year olds. And the guy at the review came back saying, this is nonsense. Energy output in, uh, has been already been rigorously examined Cited a couple of papers. One was by Benke and one was by Di Prampero. And um, of course, the Benke one was analysis, a very nice paper, uh, analysis he'd done on regional uh, to national adult rugby players on a Wingate test. And the other one was uh, by Di Prampero, which was um, adult middle distance runners running around a track with <laughs> uh, steady state VO2. And I kind of thought, Wow, how long have we been in this game? And one, his guy doesn't realise that children's metabolism is totally different from adults. And then secondly, I suppose a bit of despair. Really, I'm not, not in Egypt, great, great journal. Why has work on children been sent to people who have got no idea about children to referee? Yeah, so, it's worrying, isn't it? I mean, this is why... Nothing's changed in 30 years. The, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, again, just... Sorry, go back in history again. I think there's um, Canada's European Journal of Applied Physiology. We sent a paper in there, I think it was about 1990, and it was about 500 kids, 11 to 16, peak VO2, half of which was in the treadmill, half of which we'd done a cyclogometer. And I entitled the paper, um, I can't remember the full title, I think it was the peak VO2 of um, 11 to 16 year olds, let's say, something like that. And uh, the referees refused to accept it because. I put it was a peak VO2 and was very honest that I hadn't got any uh, plateaus out of half the kids. Yeah. And what they came back was, you know, you haven't done it properly. If you haven't got a plateau, you haven't got a true max. Uh, and I mean, I, you know, being obstinate, 
I sort of persevered and refused to change it. And the editor finally sort of accepted that um, what we got was true. You know, we said it's a big for two, but we were absolutely convinced we got maximum measures out of them. Yeah. And I thought, wow, here we are 30 years later. I've uh, got the same sort of things coming back from people who obviously have never worked with children. Yeah. And, and I just find that's sad. Yeah, I mean that's that's probably been my. By the way, I, so I'm not, I'm not unhappy with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's why we're trying to push the SIG in and, and develop it, and you know put these podcasts together essentially to to iron out and contextualise some of the evidence that's out there. Because like you say, it's people take either elite athlete studies and try and apply it to the gem pop, and that doesn't work, or they take an adult study and try and apply it to a twelve year old, and that's you know as as we both know that's never going to work. Um, if there was one piece of literature that you could say, go away, have a read, um, what would it be, you know, whether it be an aspiring student or whether it be someone who's well-versed within this field? Um, well, let me just mention one before. I think the, um, the landmark book in, in, in this field was um, Oded Barrow's book of Pediatric Sports Medicine, uh, which I think was published in like 1983. Yeah. Uh, he did a... Um, the second edition, well, actually, was, Oded was on sabbatical with me here where he was writing the second, the second edition, which came out in 2004. And what was interesting, the title had changed from uh, pediatric sports medicine to pediatric exercise medicine. So there's been some kind of movement there. So I think Oded's 83 book takes credit as being a landmark book, if you like. Yeah. Things have moved on. But I guess if you're asking me for one source, I would be... Um, I have to be very arrogant and saying that the best book that's ever been written, I was one of the editors of it, me and um, Dylan Van Mecklen, which was the came out in last year, the Oxford textbook of children's sport and exercise medicine. Yeah. And that's not because of my, my contribution. Here, I think um, we have 80, 80 contributors, all of them uh, internationally recognized, 50 chapters, contributors from 20 countries. So I think if you want one book, um, that would give an overview of the whole area of paediatric exercise science and medicine. That would be the one, the Oxford textbook of children's sport and exercise medicine. Um, yeah. And that's despite my contribution. Well, I mean, everybody, virtually everybody who's anybody in um, paediatric exercise science has got a chapter in their specialist area. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, considering your background, Neil, you're far too humble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, just uh, I, I sense that we're finished. I mean, again, I would say that um, the most important thing to me, if you ask me about contribution, is the fantastic PhD students that I've had. I mean, yeah. I, even just yesterday, I got an email from um, from John Oliver at Cardiff Met, just yeah. very pleased telling me he'd just been promoted to full professor. Now, congratulations! I think that's um, I think that's the tenth of my PhD students who are now full professors kind of all over the world, you know, in Malaysia, Canada, America, Europe, you name it, uh, else, uh, New Zealand. Uh, and I think it's it's those guys who uh, were tremendous as PhD students, but have actually gone on. And um, I use guys to cover book, um, 